Well, good morning, everyone. What a pleasure to worship our Savior. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's been so chilly this week. Um, but, yeah, this, it feels good to have the sun on us once again. Uh, we will be having the AGM following the sermon today, so stick around for that. Get some morning tea and coffee, and we'll go over... Uh, you know, the year in review, and it's a great opportunity to hear about what the plans are for the future, like the uh, camp that will be coming up or retreat in 2024. Um, there is a planted event this Saturday that Anna will just briefly talk about. So there's a, a worship event for young people here at church Saturday evening. So yeah, it's great to be involved in what God is doing and to, to work together to glorify him and to serve him using the gifts he's given us. And so we get to grow and, uh, yeah, be fruitful. And it's by God's grace that we are. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for your provision of this place to gather, for these believers who have assembled in your name, for their gifts, for their prayers, for all that you do in and through each one of them. And thank you, Lord, that we are able to contribute to the health and the vitality of the body through Jesus Christ who indwells us. Thank you for the provision in our lives that we can give back to you. We can lift our arms in a song to you. We can lay down our lives as living sacrifices before you to honor and glorify you. And we can run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. And thank you that you've given us the capacity by your grace, to encourage and edify the body. And I pray that we would be greatly encouraged by what we read in your scripture today, that it would just penetrate our hearts, that our eyes would be open to, to, to see you, our ears would be open to hear you, our hearts would be soft to receive and be fruitful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 44, continuing in our study which I have really enjoyed. I like being on a team. I think one of the benefits of being on a team is that you're all joining together for one purpose, to work together to support one another so that you can all enjoy success together. I think about individuals, you can't win a game of rugby or baseball or netball by yourself. You need a team. You'd just be, I don't care how good of a player you are, you'd be trounced to be out on a basketball court by yourself against five other people. Uh, a, w a war is not won by the general in the boardroom. He needs troops. And the most valiant fighters, they need supplies and training and one another, a chain of command and a plan. There's all these things that are needed to have success in that endeavor. And I think about times where we might hire someone or, or seek someone who can help us, someone who has our best in mind, like hiring a tax professional. Or it's like they value your profits over their own. Like they, they're, they're actually acting in your best interest. They want to see you succeed. Uh, we'll, we'll seek a solicitor for legal advice or a contractor to do quality work on our house. And we say, I want you to have the, the needs of the customer in mind. I want you to fulfill your obligations of the contract. And, and better than that, better than a hireling that you can trust is really a friend who voluntarily cares for you. 
Someone who is motivated by love, not a contract, not because they're getting paid, but because they love you and care about you, and they want to see you succeed. They want to see you um, walking with the Lord. And really, when you see someone coming alongside, this Good Samaritan's a great illustration of this because the Jewish man, he's traveling along that road to Jericho. He's beaten up. He's left for dead. He's robbed. The Pharisee and the Levite, they pass by on their side. But the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan by the Jews, stopped and he went to him and he bound up his wounds. He put him on his own animal. He took him to the inn. He paid for him to stay and said, whatever you spend to restore this man's health, I will pay upon my return. And there was this desire for an ongoing relationship together. It wasn't like, I'm just going to pay and good deed done and left. He's like, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'll make good. I mean, blessed is the one who has such a friend, right? who has your back, who's committed in relationship moving forward. Now, the sons of Jacob, we know he took, they took Benjamin to Egypt because Jake, Joseph, who was the governor of Egypt at that time, um, he said, you cannot come back and buy food unless you bring your youngest brother with you. And the brothers, those 10 brothers, um, they were united in purpose to bring him back and forth safely. And uh, initially, they were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. They're like, oh, it's because of that money that was in our bags. They're going to question us about it. They're, they want to steal our donkeys and put us, make us slaves. But then Sim, si, Simeon was released. They have hospitality, right? Their feet are washed. They're given water. They're treated to this grand feast. And they're having a great time. And for the first time in over 20 years, all the sons, all the brothers feasted together. They didn't know it, but Joseph did, and he relished that occasion. He said they were merry, they drank, they ate abundantly from his table in the midst of a famine. So there's this terrible famine going on, but they're eating like kings. They are just having the time of their lives. And Joseph, he's testing his brothers, but he keeps restraining himself, right? He doesn't let them know who he is just yet. They're still testing to happen. And uh, when we're tested, I don't like that feeling of being tested, having like, you know, prepare, preparing for a test you know about and then being tested without knowing, right? The pop quizzes. I, I'd rather prepare. But he is going to really put them through a difficult test that they don't even know about to see what sort of people they are. And it was from a heart of love to restore and to redeem and that God would use for his good purposes. So Genesis 44, starting in verse 1. Joseph speaking. And he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. As the governor of Egypt, Joseph has the power to stack the deck in his favor. He knows what he's doing and he has this servant, the same steward that had offered peace to the, the brothers when they arrived and blessed them in the name of their God. 
He, he said, fill their sacks with food as much as they can carry. Put the money back in their sacks again as before. But make sure you put my silver cup in the bag of the youngest. And uh, notice it says, as soon as the morning dawned. So the previous day, they had started feasting when? At noon. They started feasting at noon. They feasted for the whole rest of the day. They stayed overnight, and when morning dawned, they left. And they had gone in with trepidation, but I'm sure they left with relief and great joy. They had Simeon with them. They had Benjamin with them. They had bags full of food, as much as they could carry. They were loaded up and heading home, and they're like, right on. This is great. We have favor with the, the governor, who we thought was a real jerk, but he's actually a really nice guy. And uh, wow, this is terrific. God has blessed us with their donkeys, like their prized donkeys. They get to keep them because like, they were thinking they're going to make us slaves. And now they're feeling good. But then Joseph instructs his servant to overtake them. And he says, accuse them of stealing my personal cup. Now, I, I believe Joseph feared God. He didn't actually practice divination. That's an occultic practice. It proved unnecessary, like he didn't need that because he, by the power of God, he was able to interpret dreams and prepare for the famine and to save Egypt and his family from starvation. It was part of the believable ruse and mystique that Joseph had created, that he was this, this governor who seemed to know things. And he was able to, like he seated them all at the table in order. And I'm sure the brothers wondered, how does he know these things? How does he know what to ask us and how to press us? He knows all the sensitive topics, like exactly what to say. And so he's like, well, you took his personal silver cup. He puts them on notice that he knows the truth. And he rebuked them for their theft Verse six, it says, so he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does the, my Lord say these things? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each, each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So the steward overtakes them. He's like, why do you guys repay evil with good? Why did you steal that cup? And they're like, why are you even saying this? If we were thieves, why would we have brought back the money from before? But we gave you everything. There was no need to steal anything from you. Haven't we demonstrated that we're men of integrity? We said we had a younger brother. We brought our younger brother. He's here. What more could you want from us? They were so confident, the 11 brothers, that they put the guilty party under the penalty of death. They go, whoever has it, let him die. And the rest of us will be your slaves. That is confidence. Very confident. It's like the, the policeman pulls you over and you go, you can search my car. You will not find any contraband in here upon my life. Well, they're very confident. And as each person's sack was searched, they see, nothing to worry about. 
We don't have it. Until they get to Benjamin. And there it is. Can you imagine the sinking feeling, the shock, the disbelief, the like, oh my goodness, what is going on? There is the silver cup. There were no tricks. There was no sleight of hand. They opened the bag and there it was as described. There was nothing they could say. And what was the reaction of the brothers? It says they all tore their clothes. That's the same reaction that Jacob had when he heard that Joseph had, that his coat had been found bloodied in Genesis 37, 34. It says, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. So the brothers had gone from being careless about Joseph, being hateful towards him, wanting him dead, that when Benjamin's life was at risk, they tore their clothes in mourning and grief, and they would not leave him. I think if the opportunity had presented them, if Joseph was in Benjamin's shoes years before, and they had the choice to either become slaves or have Joseph be a slave, they'd have been like, right on, we're rid of this kid, because they despised him, because of his dreams, because of their envy towards him. And notice that they don't berate Benjamin. They don't even question him about it. There's nothing written there. It didn't matter how the cup managed to find its way in the bag. Even if he was at fault, they were determined to save him. It didn't matter. Who put the cup there? The fact the cup was there and that he was going to be taken, that was enough. And they all returned to deliver him. Now, my dad told me growing up, and some have said that this is an odd thing to say. For me, it wasn't because I grew up with my dad. But he said, you know, if you commit a crime and go to prison, I won't be bailing you out. Don't think that I'm, I exist to get you out of trouble that you get into yourself. And so when he said that, it wasn't like, oh, my dad doesn't love me. No, I knew my dad loved me. But he wanted to make sure that I had a high view of justice and that I would not expect him to get me out of trouble that I have chosen. And really, a lot of people can have that view of God. They think, because God loves me, he's compelled to forgive me whenever I ask him. He'll just bail me out of trouble. This is untrue. God forgives the contrite, broken sinner who repents and trusts in him. He doesn't just forgive you because he loves you. He does love you, and he will forgive you but it's because of faith in him. It's because of who we are before him. It's not out of pity for us. Like, ah, oh, you've suffered enough. No, no amount of suffering. I mean, those who die in their sins, where do they suffer forever? In hell, prepared for the devil and his angels. So praise the Lord for his love and praise the Lord that Jesus didn't come to just bail out sinners, but to die for us, to experience death to satisfy the righteous requirements of God and his law so that our sins could be atoned for. There could be payment made. We could be pardoned and the righteousness of Christ could be given to us by grace through faith. Love covers a multitude of sins, but the blood of Jesus cleanses sin and provides pardon. It's not loving to ignore sin. If God did that, we would all be damned forever. God does not ignore sin. He tells us of our sinfulness and he also provides a way of pardon and forgiveness and at the cost of his own life. 
we can be redeemed. We can be forgiven. 1 John 1 9 says concerning believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. The just requirements of the law satisfied through Jesus, the price has been paid. Praise God. And out of love for him, we sin no more. Jesus paid the necessary price. So that verse in 1 John 1, 9, that's for believers. It's not just everyone. It's those who have received salvation, who are born again. There is forgiveness for us. Genesis 44, verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and who also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. The man in whose, cup, whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Judah and all the brothers, they fall down before Joseph again in fulfilling that dream that he had had years before. And he says, what have you done? Don't you know a man like me will find out? I'll know what's happening. I can know the truth. And Judah, the brother who was responsible for Benjamin, he's like the spokesman here. Ironic because he was the one who suggested they sell Joseph years and years before for pocket money. He's the one now speaking and seeking uh, Benjamin's good. And he doesn't say that Benjamin stole the cup. He's just saying the one with whom the cup was found. But what can we say? You have the cup. You have the power. Here we are, your slaves. What can we do? And to accuse them of planting the cup, <laughs> that's not going to help you when you're standing before someone be, who's, who holds your life in their hands. There was no way to clear themselves. And Judah said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now, remember the previous time when they were in prison and they were in Joseph's presence. They go, God is surely repaying us because we didn't listen to our brother and his cries, that we were hard against him. And this is why this is happening to us. They felt it was like God was repaying them for their, the evil they caused their brother. And now they were reaping the consequences of that. And now this was something that they kept secret from, Joseph, from Jacob. They've also kept a secret from Benjamin. And now Benjamin is with them. Joseph unknowingly is with them and they admit their iniquity. They go, God has found out our iniquity. We've kept the secret for years, but God knows about it. God knows about it. And so we will be slaves because of it. They had come to a place of confession and brokenness and they could just throw themselves upon the mercy of God and the governor of Egypt. And Joseph's like, no, it wouldn't be right for you all to be my slaves, just the one, just the one with whom the cup was found. Go back in peace to your father. Again, I think if this had happened years ago, they would have ditched Joseph happily. I mean, they would have left him in a pit, but they left. Um, they, they would not leave Benjamin. And he said, I, so Joseph's testing them to see if, they're, if they valued self-preservation over self-sacrifice. 
for their brother. Now Moses, in the law, later on, he explains a principle that's important for us to remember. If you remember, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were on the east side of the Jordan. It was good cattle country, and they're like, well, we've got cattle. This is where we want to settle down. This, we want this to be our inheritance. And so this was before they crossed the Jordan and cleared out the promised land that God had given them. And um, it was wrong for them to settle down on the east side without helping their brethren uh, obtain their inheritance. And so Moses was quite annoyed at the beginning where they go, this is our, this is our place, we want to stay here. He's like, that's not right. Your brothers are going to go in there and you're not going to help them? You're just going to sit in prosperity and peace over here because they've, we've all helped you to clear out Og and Bashan and all these kings here and you're just going to sit here idle while the rest of your brethren are struggling and in war? No, you're going to go with them. And they go, oh no, we're happy to do that. We're happy to go over We're going to help them defeat their enemies, make sure they have obtained their inheritance, and once they're settled down and there's peace in the land, then we'll return back to the east side, and this is where we will stay. And Moses um, agreed with that. Numbers 32, 20. It says, then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So God would hold the men of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, to keep their word. Because if they went back on their word, who were they sinning against? God. They spoke those words before the Lord. God would hold them accountable to those words. And he said, take note. Be sure your sin will find you out. God will know. And the appropriate punishment will be meted out in due time. We know that the wages of sin is death. Still applicable for Christians. And I believe that because of myself, not because I look around and see this, but um, I believe we can be so carnal as to be more afraid that our sin would be exposed to others, even more concerned than God taking action against that and bringing negative consequences and judgment upon us. We could be more concerned about what other people think than what God does or what he has said in his word. Know that all sin is against God, and he does not stand idly by. Forgiveness does not mean that sin is free of consequences. We have examples of this all throughout scripture. Where Adam, he's cast out of the garden. Aaron and Moses, forbidden to enter the promised land. God put away their sin, but there were consequences. The sword did not depart from David's house. King Uzziah, he died a leper. Ananias and Sapphira, they, in the early church, they lied to the Holy Spirit and were struck dead. So it's for us to take initiative when we have a guilty conscience to confess our sin, to repent before the Lord, and to receive those consequences from his hands. And we can rejoice knowing that it is for our good. It is for our restoration in relationship with him and one another. And to say, God, I accept this as from you. And I am your servant. Genesis 44, 18. Then Judah came near to him and said, 
Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. Do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your younger, youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our younger, youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And I love how it says, Then Judah came near to him. So they're all there laying on the ground in front of Joseph. And he's like asking them, why did you do this thing? And he gets up and he creeps over and he's like, let me just say something, please. He's begging to reason with him. He wants to let him know the gravity of the situation and that the only reason why they brought him in the first place or even mentioned that they had a father or brother is because they were specifically asked. They knew that Jacob was protective of Benjamin and they were protective of both their father and Benjamin. And they wanted to pre prevent any harm from coming to them. And now you have this situation where Joseph's brothers didn't listen to his pleading when he was being sold as a slave. Would he harden his heart to his brothers? Or would he show them the mercy and grace that God had shown him? The law of Moses, it would demand an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a burn for a burn. Would Joseph justify treating them as he had been treated? Or would he listen to them? Would he respond with grace? So Judah explains the situation that the governor had put them in a very difficult spot by separating them. And now to, to make him a slave, that would just be unthinkable. It would kill his dad. And this demand, it brought conflict to the family. It opened old wounds, as we'll see. Genesis 44, 27, then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons and the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant has become surety for the lad to my father, saying, If you do not bring him back, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Judah lays it all out here. He says, This is going to be the consequence of your actions. If you require this of us, it's going to kill my dad. He is just going to be broken again. And this was the first insight that Joseph received of what his father had heard about him. Because his father, he, he had never, Joseph had never heard about anything. He had been sold as a slave. He had been sold to Potiphar. He was in Egypt. He was in jail. And now he's in Pharaoh's house. But he had never heard anything about how his dad responded or what his dad thought. 
And I think maybe in those dark moments when he's in prison, when he's enslaved and he's wondering, I wonder if dad's forgot all about me. I wonder if he was in on it. I wonder if he wanted to be done with me as well and I just didn't know. And he's left wondering, but now he's like, dad thinks that I was torn to pieces by a wild animal and here I am perfectly fine by God's grace. Judah says that if, he, if Jacob lost Benjamin as he had Joseph, he would be brought down to the grave in grief and sorrow. It's like he would lose his will to live, his desire for life, since his life is bound up in the lad's life. Jacob's life was completely wrapped up in Benjamin's life. He was dependent on him. You could almost compare it to like a, a mother carrying a child in her womb, that if the mother suffers a mortal wound, that would end the child's life as well. And it's like he was wrapped up in Benjamin's life. Anything that happens to Benjamin, it hurts him. And if he was to be separated from him, he was his life. It was not a healthy attachment. But Judah couldn't help that. Given the intense grief and loss that Jacob suffered, his brothers were sympathetic towards him, also because they knew they were the reason for it, right? They were the ones that sold him. They're the, one, they're the ones that separated them. So they always felt bad about it. And they always, they, they knew that they were the cause to some extent. And besides, Judah said, I am surety for him. I'm the one responsible for him. And I need to bring, make sure he goes back well. The Bible says, greater love has no one than to lay down your life for another God demonstrated his love by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for us. It's like he was willing to part with his only begotten, beloved son, and to die so we could live, so we could be brought into his family. To the end that our lives would be bound up in his life. Turn in your Bibles to John 14, 18 through 20. In this passage, Jesus had said he was the way, the truth, and the life. He explained that he was one with the Father. This is following on from that. What Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, verse 18. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live you will live also. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. During this conversation, Jesus would tell his disciples he was going away. They didn't understand that that meant that he was going to die, that he was going to die on the cross, and they would see him no more, that he would be buried in a tomb carved out of the rock. The world would not see Jesus, but they would see him again. So he promises, I, you will, he says, I will come to you. So you will be deprived of me, but I will come to you. You will see me again. And then he says, because I live, you will live also. When Jesus died, they grieved over him because their master and the one they believed was the Messiah was dead. And what did this promise mean to them then? Because I live, you will live also. Well, he's dead. What comfort is there in those words? But when he was raised from the dead 
and he's standing before them, it's like, whoa, we live because he lives. And because he lives, we will always live. And he is in the father and he is in us and we are in him. There was, it, it just opened their eyes to this relationship they could have with the living God that we can have lives bound up in the life of Christ who loves us, who died for us. It's so easy for other things to become our life on earth. A career, a job, a relationship, a pursuit. We can say, I have no life. Or he has no life, or she has no life. And what we mean is, there is one chief pursuit or aim of their life that basically wraps up everything. That is their main thing. They are doing it. So the majority of their time, the majority of their thoughts, their desires, it involves this one thing. And so a sports fan, we would call a diehard supporter, um, that they live and die with their team. The team does well, they're happy. The team does bad, they are depressed or angry. Their happiness is bound up in how the team is going. And as born-again Christians, Jesus is our life. Our life is bound up in him. And we go, you're ru- if we feel our life is ruined, it can't, your life cannot be ruined any more than the cross ruined Jesus. It didn't ruin him. It was the path to being glorified forever. And so knowing that our life is bound up in Christ's life, that he is our life, that changes everything. The troubles and tragedies of our life do not ruin our lives because Jesus is our life. And we live because he lives. Our life is permanently, perpetually bound in him. And so we are bound to praise him. We're bound to thank him. And we get to choose if we'll do that. Because apart from Jesus, our life is a ruin even if you live like a king. Everyone living, you have your life bound up in something or someone. Some people's lives are bound in themselves, their appearance, their identity, their freedoms, abilities. Others are bound in the opinions or respect of others. Some are bound in their children, uh, their money, or their business. So it's a good question for us. What is my life bound up in? Am I living like my life is bound up in Christ? And if you lose your desire for life, to keep living. It's evidence that you've seeked to, you ceased looking to Jesus who is your life. And there's people likely here who have at one time perhaps considered even taking their own life for a number of reasons, but know that if your life is in Christ, knowing he died and rose from the dead, you can live and rejoice in him today because he is still good. He is still awesome. He is your life. He is your reason for living. You live Because he lives, and you always will. Genesis 44, 33. Judah concludes, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I I see the evil that would come upon my father? Judah ends his very heartfelt 
moving speech. He says, I beg you, let me remain in Egypt as a slave. Let Benjamin go home to Jacob. And so he was, in doing so, he's requesting a life of slavery for himself, away from his sons, away from his home, away from his possessions, putting his life voluntarily in Joseph's hands for Benjamin's sake. And he's like, I can't bear going home and breaking Jacob's heart again. And this is a massive change of heart for someone who was willing to sell his brother for 20 pieces of silver previously. And so he surrenders himself out of love for his father, not out of pity for his brother, not guilt over his past wrongs. That's not why he does this. He does this for his father's sake. And I'm led to consider how Judah's moved by the love of his father, not his own guilt, not his pity, to be a slave. And I think of Jesus. He came to earth as a man, the son of God, and he went to the cross to lay down his life for sinners. Judah went to Egypt as surety for his brother. Hebrews 7.22, it says, Jesus came as the surety of a better covenant. So Jesus came as surety. He was responsible to establish a new covenant. Judah went to Egypt with a job to do, to bring Benjamin home safely. Jesus came with a job to establish a new covenant. He's responsible for it. John 1.17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25, that speak of Jesus. Hebrews 7, 24. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Judah, he intercedes on behalf of his brother, on behalf of his father, to the governor. The governor was not against him. The governor, Joseph, he only wanted the opportunity to love, to care, to provide, to converse, to have fellowship, not only with Benjamin, but with all his brothers and his dad. Now, Judah doesn't know this, right? He thinks the guy is his enemy. And he's just begging him, like, please, let me be a slave instead of Benjamin. I can't break my father's heart again. The Bible tells us that Jesus lives to intercede on our behalf to the Father. We also read that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, the third part of the triune Godhead in Romans 8.26. It says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Like Joseph's heart was only to bless all his brothers, the Father's heart is only inclined for our good, for all of us. He's not against us. He does not desire our, our destruction. Jesus intercedes to the Father, and they have the same heart of love towards all. You think that Joseph or Judah loved the Father more? They both loved Jacob, right? They both wanted Jacob to live. That's why Joseph asked, hey, how's your dad? How's he doing? 
Oh, he's in fine health. Great. I'm glad to hear it. When Jesus intercedes on behalf of us to the Father, he is not restraining him from destroying us. His desire is to save us. That's why he sent his son. You can put out of your mind completely the idea that Jesus is restraining the Father, that he is just like good cop, bad cop, angry God getting ready to destroy, and then Jesus steps in and he goes, please, for my sake, save them. No, Jesus came because the Father loves us. And because the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf for good. They're all in agreement about our salvation, our forgiveness, our pardon, our blessing, our instruction and correction for our good. Now Moses, he pleaded with God to turn aside his wrath, right? Let it fall on me. I'll destroy them all. No, Jesus, he's the surety of a better covenant, a covenant of grace because God is for us. And like we sung today, since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, God's love toward us is unrestrained today. Joseph, they still didn't know who he was. He hid his identity, but God has not hidden his identity from us. He's given us his word. He's demonstrated his love through us to Jesus. And we are to do as Judah did to Joseph. We're called to draw near to Jesus, our great high priest, to throw ourselves upon the mercy of our God. Our lives are bound up in him and to, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he is for us. We can be continually casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. He invites us to come boldly into his throne room of grace, to find grace and mercy in time of need. And every day comes with its own tests. Will we trust him? Will we make him, I mean, he is our life. Will we live like our life is wrapped up in his, bound up in his? Are we willing to surrender ourselves before him in obedience? Do, will we draw near to him in faith, believing he is for us and will actually help us? Our hope in Jesus is one that does not disappoint Anyone here ever been disappointed? Well, it wasn't because of Jesus. It wasn't because of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we sung that song today, and it said there's a lion in those lungs. We have the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are bound up in him, Jesus Christ. Our life is in his life. We live because he lives. And so isn't it wonderful what he has done, but what he continues to do for our sakes, that he intercedes on our behalf to a father who is inclined to save us, who loves us with an everlasting love, who loved us before he created us. And since our lives are bound up in Christ's life, let's rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's trust him. Let's rest in him now and always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life that you've given each one of us, that you are our life and our lives are bound up in your life. 
And I thank you that there's nothing in this world that can separate us from your love. There is nothing we can go through that will ruin us except if we depart from you. And thank you that nothing can separate us from your hand. That we are safe and secure in your love and in your grace and in your salvation with this new covenant. Thank you that Jesus has seen it done and it is finished. Lord, we are not finished. And there is a lot more that you want to accomplish. There's things that we want to accomplish. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us to bring us to a place of humility and submission and obedience to you, trusting in you, no matter what happens, no matter how we feel, knowing that you are for us, that you are interceding on our behalf, that God the Father, God Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit are all communing for our benefit and for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that we would be edified and strengthened through this, that we would take to heart your word. And even if there's negative consequences for our own sin, we would submit ourselves before before you with rejoicing, with contentment, with gladness for the goodness that you have shown us in the land of the living. So, Lord, we thank you that you have justified us, that we have peace with God, that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And I pray you'd bring us to a place of rejoicing and celebrating how good you have been, how good you are, and will ever be. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, strengthen each one of us, that you would bring encouragement to our hearts, and that our lives would truly be bound up in your life. And thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.